Most of us, if we're honest, can admit that we have a weird relationship with the Bible. As Tim Mackey from our first ever episode said, we tend to see the Bible like we see that weird uncle who comes over for holidays. We know we should love him. Sometimes he gives us sweet gifts, but at the same time, he's also a little crazy. He comes over with a ton of different girlfriends, and sometimes he says things that are just plain racist. He's family, but he's weird. And that's how a lot of us tend to see the Bible. If you're a Christian, you've probably been told to read it, maybe even told to love it. But then you try, and it tends to be that we struggle, and often we just give up. Then as we're looking on the outside, there's a whole set of difficult questions that many of us struggle to deal with when it comes to the Bible. Questions like, isn't it full of contradictions? Or questions about how we deal with the stories that smack of genocide and ethnic cleansing. Or maybe you read The Da Vinci Code or watched anything on the History Channel and you heard that the Bible came to be in secret backroom conversations by politically motivated theologians attempting to maneuver and wield power for their own gain. The chief question underneath all of it is can it be trusted? Can the Bible be trusted? Does it have some kind of authority? And if so, where does that authority come from? What does it mean? What do we do with it? What is its point? And I think what I've learned is that most of us don't have great answers to those questions. Instead, what we have is reductionist answers, truncated narratives and platitudes. For a lot of us, the Bible is built to be a moral fable, a story that is meant to inspire and lead us into good living. I remember as a kid, I heard this terrible acronym that I think sums up this idea. That was that the Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth. See, this view, though, of the Bible shapes the way that we see it, shapes the way that we see God, and shapes the way that we see its description of life and everything in it. In each case, what we get is shallow caricatures, short-sighted visions of God and the story. See, in this story, what I tend to see is that God is a charming old man in the sky. He generally wants good things for us, but we have to watch out because he is prone to bouts of schizophrenic violence. In this story, the world, creation... It is not some home or infinite place, but it is just a passing through, a transitory hotel, the finite resident before the infinite vacation. And we, humans, people, well, we're just passing through. And here's the thing. There is no good news in this story. No compelling vision of reality or the future to animate our lives and our desires. This story doesn't ground us in the present or give us power to fight injustice, create art, or love well. It doesn't answer our deep, aching questions about the world. It doesn't give us anything to invite others into. And it doesn't deal with our sense of meaninglessness or discontentment. At the end of the day, it doesn't really do anything. My name is Johnny Morrison, and you're listening to The People's Theology, brought to you by Missio Day in Salt Lake City. We're a podcast that is talking about theology and culture like it matters, because, well, it does.
Today on the pod, we'll be talking about what the Bible is. And really, as we go back through the different conversations we've already had in this podcast, this question has always been under the surface. As we talked about hell and the goodness of God or creation and evolution, at the end of the day, these are questions about the content, message, and purpose of the Bible. Because what you believe about the Bible determines how you understand and see these and other important issues. Right? If the Bible is a book of laws telling us how to avoid the bad place and get to the good place, well, then how looks different than what we've talked about over the last two weeks. Or if the Bible is meant to be an authority on modern science, then we have to have a very different and specific conversation about the message and purpose of the creation narratives, which is not the conversation that we've had the last couple of weeks. So today we're going to talk about what the Bible is, what it actually says about itself. Because I think that most of us have no idea what the Bible declares about itself, what its stated purpose is. We have no idea how it describes itself or what it intends for itself. Instead, we wield it or critique it without ever really knowing the true thesis. So, what is the Bible? Well, to answer that question, I need to ask you another one. When or where is the first mention of the writing of the Bible found in the Bible? Take a second. Let my people go. Slaves are mine. Their lives are mine. All that they own is mine. The Exodus, for the life of Israel, is one of the most cataclysmic, significant, and monumental moments for their history and their story. It will be told for generations and generations after. It will shape their theology, their worldview, their understanding of life and everything in it, so much so that when we come to the time of Jesus, it is still the cornerstone for how they understand the world. That moment many of us understand because of different movies, whether it's Charleston Heston, a cartoon, or Christian Bale, we've interacted with the Exodus in some way. But that would be a logical first moment where the writing of the Bible appears. But it is actually not the first moment. After the Exodus, after the Israelites have been rescued from slavery in Egypt, they find themselves wandering in the wilderness and facing a new and overwhelming challenge. This group of refugees is wandering through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And in that wilderness, they come face to face with an enemy that is hoping to capitalize on their precarious position. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephadim. The Israelites are these former slaves. They have no sophisticated military technology or battle-hardened leaders. They are a small group of wandering nomads in search of a home, all of a sudden facing down a legitimate military threat. What are they going to do? So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Israel's leader, Moses, tells his second to choose a group of men to defend Israel, which totally makes sense. But at the same time, Moses decides that he is going to stand on a hill 
with the staff that God gave him extended. So Moses is telling his chief leaders and lieutenants that his own role in the upcoming battle will be not to fight, not to lead on the ground, but to lift his hands towards the sky. Now, I don't know a ton about military technology or strategy, but this isn't conventional. But for some reason, maybe just because he's old or because Israel has already seen God do strange things, no one argues with them. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. What happens? Well, the unexpected. Expected. The text reads, Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed and overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So God shows up. In the midst of the chaos and the battles, he shows up and fights on Israel's behalf. In this text, just a few moments later, in Exodus 17, verse 14, God tells Moses to write this as a memorial in a book. It is the very first time in the entire Bible that God tells someone to write something. And in this very simple line, we get the first answer to both what is the Bible and what is it about. Scholar Christopher Wright says it this way, quote, The writings that now comprise our Bible are themselves the product of and witness to the ultimate mission of God. End quote. Meaning when we read this story, it is like reading the journalistic accounts of people who actively witnessed this God on mission do his work. Every event, every incident, every moment is an episode in the larger missional narrative. So we're asking, what is the Bible? It's important to understand this because the Bible does not claim to be a moral story meant to inspire good living. It doesn't claim to be commands dropped from heaven on golden tablets that demand our submission. Instead, it is the story of the Creator on mission to rescue, redeem, and reconcile all things back to Himself. Christopher Wright goes on to say, quote, The Bible is the drama of this God of purpose engaged in the mission of achieving that purpose universally. Embracing past, present, and future, Israel and all the nations, life, the universe, and everything, and with its center, focus, and climax in Jesus Christ. End quote. The Bible is a story, it is a story about Jesus. He is its chief character, leading actor, and primary. Hero, and every moment, every episode, every event is pointing us towards Him. From the mundane to the miraculous, to the weird to the wondrous. He is what makes this story good and beautiful. He is the reason it's compelling and powerful and inviting. And if we make this story about anything other, I, I think we'll find ourselves trudging through it. And specifically, trudging through the shallow waters of moralism. 
So what does the Bible say that it is? Well, first, it says that it is a story about God. A way for us to know him, remember him, and experience him in that. It's a way for us to know that he is the rescuer, the redeemer, the one who invades difficult spaces. That he is God. But that is not all that the Bible is, nor all that it says about itself. Which leads to a second question. Where is the second mention of the writing of the Bible found in the Bible. This question is a little bit less of a trick because the second command to write the story down comes just a few pages later in Exodus 24, verse 4. But to understand Exodus 24, you need to know some other things because a lot happens in the story between Exodus 17 and Exodus 24. Specifically, Exodus 19. And if you haven't read it and if you don't understand what's going on, then you should maybe just press pause, go read Exodus 19, and then continue this story. I'll give you a second. Just, Just go ahead. So in Exodus 19, God meets with his rescued people, the rescued Israelites. They've been rescued from Egypt and slavery, and they have been rescued from Amalek and his attempt to attack these wandering refugees. God meets them on a mount named Mount Sinai. And he tells them why he has rescued them, why he has called them, why he has chosen them to be his People. And it's a terrifying moment because there's this smoke on a mountain and supposedly God's presence descends onto it and the people of Israel are frightened. But then he says in Exodus 19 verse 5 through 6, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Now what's happening in this moment is a twofold invitation. First, God is inviting Israel to know him in a special way. They're going to live in close relation to him, close proximity to him. They're going to hear his words and experience the benefits of relationship with him. As you're reading the story, there's multiple metaphors that will be used to describe this relationship. Sometimes it's likened to a father with his children, but more often it's described as a marriage. And this is a marriage covenant. And if Israel says, I do, to this marriage covenant, then they're entering into a covenant relationship with God. And it is a promise to be true, to be faithful, to be loving, to honor God and love him alone. And likewise... If God enters into this covenant relationship, he is promising to be faithful, loving, and protective of Israel. He promises them that he will go with them into their new home, that he'll defend them from evil, that he'll provide for their needs. But it is also an invitation to join with God in his mission to rescue the world. That is what it means to be a nation of priests. In the ancient world, priests would be the mediators between the people and their gods. And God, the creator God, is inviting all of Israel, the entire nation, to mediate 
His goodness, their relationship with him, the benefits they receive, that they get to mediate that and spread those benefits to everyone around them so that through them, the world will experience the goodness of renewal, the goodness of God's mission and rescue, and then will likewise receive an invitation to know him. God offers this twofold invitation to Israel through Moses in Exodus 24, verse 3. It says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Israel is saying, I do to God's covenant invitation. They're saying, I do, to entering into relationship with him, to joining the mission of rescuing the world. So what does Moses do next? But like before, he writes it down, documenting the story and reminding the people who their God is. But these words are more than a memorial like before. They will serve as a future invitation to the people. Christopher Wright, again, continuing his thought, says, quote, The Bible renders to us the story of God's mission through God's people in their engagement with God's word for the sake of all God's creation, end quote. The story of God that we're reading pushes the boundaries, challenges what we believe, and paints a vibrant picture of God on Mission. It then, and at the same time, invites people to know and participate in that very work. That is what the story is doing. Showing us who God is, showing us that he is inviting us into it, and at the same time showing us what it looks like to be those people who are a part of God's mission, rescuing God's world. So what we have is, first, that the Bible is a story about God. And second, that it is a story that invites us to know this God and join with him on mission to rescue and redeem the world. Now, as we come to the New Testament, this whole idea stays the same. Jesus takes this story this story about mission, about God on mission. And he applies it to himself. He says that he is the climax of this rescuing mission. And that everything, everything that has been written, everything that has been done is in fact truly about him. Then in Matthew 28, he tells his disciples right before he leaves that all authority is his And then he commissions these 11 followers to take this story, this news about him, and to teach it, to invite others into it. So all of a sudden you have this moment repeated. Jesus is deputizing his disciples, his apostles, to represent him, to tell the story, to take this news and apply it to the local context of the church, to continue flushing it out and continue passing it on. And in doing that, to continue inviting other people to baptize them into what? The way of Jesus. 
which is how we get the final books of the Bible. That these are the stories of Jesus applied to the church, which are the people invited into covenant relationship. So what does all of this mean? What do we do with it? Well, first, what we've seen is that the Bible is a story. And it is a story about Jesus. A story about Jesus as the climax and fulfillment of God's mission to rescue and redeem the world, to fix things and put them right. Now, what that means practically for us is that we read it because it is about him. He is the one that we have allegiance to. He is the reason that we approach the text. And I think that if we come for anything else, any other reason, we'll burn out or get trudged up in the shallow moralism of our culture. The Bible is a story about Jesus. And as we read it, we are being invited to know and follow Jesus, to become his people. Now, this also matters because we need to see that the events, stories, episodes, and things that are happening are part of a larger narrative context that is about Jesus. When we rip a moment out of context, we can easily make it about whatever we want. If I just ripped random scenes from Harry Potter, I could make it about an uptight and grumpy British family living in the suburbs who never experience anything spectacular at all. But it wouldn't be the story. So we have to understand that the story of the Bible, like the story of any good book or history, has context. And we need to read everything within that context. Second, what we've seen sort of subtly is that the Bible is open about its own writing process. Nowhere do we see the Bible claiming that it was dropped out of heaven on golden tablets or produced through some kind of weird drug-like Holy Spirit trance. No, instead, the Bible presents itself as both a divine and a human word. And it isn't ashamed about this, that it is both human and divine. It's open. And so should we. Because I think what we tend to do, regardless of where we come from, is try to erase one of those perspectives. If we come from a traditional and fundamentalist perspective, we erase the human element and say that the Bible is golden tablets. But if we come from the other spectrum, we deny that it was divine and say that it was only humans and therefore it is just a fable or a moral story. But that is not what it claims about itself. It claims to be both human and divine. That human personality and human reality and history are interwoven in the purposes and intentions of God. Who are they telling a story about? And finally, what this means is that the authority of the Bible, a question we began to ask at the beginning, should we submit ourselves to it? Should we even read it? Why is it important? Where does its authority come from? Well, its authority comes from being about Jesus, not because it's golden tablets, but because it is about the God who is rescuing the universe. He is the reason we read it, because all authority has been given to him. He is the reason that we engage it, because we want to be his people. He is the one that we're actually called to submit our lives to. He is the king who we engage and come to know through his story. 
as you read the biblical narrative, there are other places where God tells people to write the story down. Plenty of places in the prophets and throughout. But as we close, I think there's one other place that is particularly significant. It comes in Revelation 21, verse 5. What you have is God is painting a picture of what the world will look like when his mission is fulfilled, when all things have been righted. The imagery is overwhelming and beautiful. It's like an infinite weight pressing the expanse of imaginations. You see God overthrowing evil, undoing injustice, wiping away tears, and declaring the end of death. Then it says, He who is seated on the throne, Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Write this down. It is sort of a memorial to the things that God will do. And it is sort of an invitation because as we join with him in his work of restoring and rescuing and mediating presence, the hope that draws us and motivates us is this picture. So it is both the memorial and an invitation. But it is also a promise. The story of God shows us a faithful hero who always invades dark spaces to bring life and light. A God who is on mission to rescue the world and reconcile all things back to himself. A God at work. And this moment shows us what he is ultimately working for. And it is very good. Like the memorial of Exodus 17, God knows that we will struggle. He knows that life will be hard and that other stories will try and re-narrate reality and cast a different vision of hope and significance. So instead he gives us his. A vision of hope so big that it confronts all rivals with a word of true flourishing. This is what he's moving and inviting us towards. This is what compels, captures imaginations, and moves us forward. This is the story of God. And it is the very story that he is inviting all of us into. You've been listening to The People's Theology, brought to you by Missio Day in Salt Lake City, Utah. For more information about the podcast or the church, check out our website at www.missiodayslc.com. And thanks for listening. And if you would, if you've enjoyed this episode or found it helpful or insightful, would you go and rate us on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts? It really does help us. And more importantly than that, would you share it with somebody you think it would be helpful to? Someone who's interested in this conversation, who would like their voice to be a part of the conversation or has similar questions that we did. Music on today's episode was brought to you by Lee Rosevere, Andres Erickson, and Jack Effick. Thanks for listening and check back soon for another episode.